This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Monday, January 14th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now I know I'm supposed to take the words at the top of ABC's This Week, not as a mission statement, but as a bit of puffery. It's not an ironclad guarantee when George Stephanopoulos promises to... We'll break down the politics, smoke out the spin, the facts that matter this week. Now here's how smoke out the spin works. They'll have an elected official on. They'll want to get to five topics in eight and a half minutes, so at least two or three of the topics can't really allow for a follow-up. The politician knows the deal, the show's producers know the deal, and we know the deal that when they say they'll smoke out the spin, that they won't. In other words, that's just spin. This was all laid bare this week when I heard this assertion by Representative Steve Scalise. President Trump has taken more steps to stand up against Russia than anybody we've seen in a long time. Uh, Look at what he's done with the Ukraine. Uh, Russia was running through the Ukraine when Barack Obama was president. The Ukraines asked for help from America. They didn't ask for troops. They said, look, send us some of the tank-busting missiles that you have so that we can stop Russia. Barack Obama said no. Donald Trump said yes and helped the Ukrainians to push back Russia out of the Ukraine. Look at what he's done with Iran. And you've seen this partnership between Russia and Iran. Uh, President Trump has stood up against Iran the bad deal that allows Iran to get a nuclear weapon. Uh, You've seen time and time again with sanctions, with other things, uh, President Trump standing up against Russia. And and what was the spin-stopping pushback on that statement? There was none. And NBC's Meet the Press doesn't have a smoke-out-the-spin guarantee up top, but they didn't smoke out the spin when Ted Cruz was on, pretty much reading from the identical hymnal about President Trump and the Russians. Listen, I will say, if you compare objectively President Trump's policies to Russia compared to President Obama's policies to Russia, by any measure, President Obama was much easier, was much more gentle on Russia. No, 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 he was not. So the one measurable, the one tangible act of toughness, this arms sale to the Ukrainians, that is true. Obama did oppose that. He was less into arms sales in general. But here is NBC's own reporting on that very arms sale. President Donald Trump's national security advisor spent months trying to convince him to sign off on a plan to supply new weapons to Ukraine to aid in the country's fight against Russian-backed separatists, according to multiple senior administration officials. Yet when the president finally authorized the major policy shift, he told his aides not to publicly tout his decision. Doing so, Trump argued, might agitate Russian President Vladimir Putin. And that was the only way he could be said to be even a little bit tougher. What about, let's look at another area of Russian-U.S. interaction. It's going to maybe come out of left field for you. Election interference. You know, that counts. That counts as a way to measure toughness or weakness on Russia. Trump has not been tougher than Obama. Obama called out the Russians in terms of election interference. Could have done more, but at least said it was true and it happened. He expelled diplomats over it. Trump has called it a hoax. He said it was a hoax that Russia even used Facebook. Back in 2017, he tweeted, the Russia hoax continues. Now it's ads on Facebook. What about totally biased and dishonest media coverage in favor of crooked Hillary? And then he went and denied ever saying what he said 
which he said many times that Russia didn't meddle in the elections. And then there are a bunch of other things, either through ignorance or defiance. He contradicted U.S. policy in recognizing Russia's annexation of Crimea. And then he objected to and hedged when there was a congressional requirement that he imposed sanctions on Russia. So because the hosts of the Sunday shows couldn't smoke out or smack down the spin, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take lawfare's Susan Hennessy, and I'm going to put her in dialogue with those esteemed officials we just heard. Here's Susan Hennessy from Lawfare Special Edition, which recently aired the FBI's counterintelligence investigation of Donald Trump. Of course, Donald Trump is a threat to the national security of the United States. Of course, the things he does promotes Russian interests, whatever his motivation is. I think anyone can see he hasn't been tough on Russia. Anyone can see that disclosing sensitive Israeli intelligence in the Oval Office is a threat to national security. Anyone who watched his performance in Helsinki would be concerned. Anyone would wonder why the president of the United States would have this secret conversation with Putin without U.S. interpreters. Anyone would ask why he was so insistent on lifting existing sanctions and not imposing congressionally directed sanctions. Yeah, anyone except top Republicans in the legislative branch and the White House. On the show today, I spiel about the intellectual forefather of Donald Trump's wall. He's a name in the news, Steve King. Maybe you heard of him. But first, she is a parent and a scholar. I actually don't know if she's a scholar. She's smart, though. She's really smart. She's looked up a lot of stuff that happened in history. That makes you a scholar, I think. And she's written a book about parenting and the wisdom of the ancients, even the wisdom of our own parents. Turns out, that would have appalled us. Jennifer Traig, author of Act Natural, A Cultural History of Misadventures in Parenting. The name of the book is Act Natural, which is also what they say, or what maybe an old 30s-style gangster without a full command of adverbs would say when they're trying to get away with something. And parents have all felt that we're doing just that. Act Natural, a cultural history of misadventures in parenting. The author is Jennifer Traig, who is a self-identified person who darns socks by the light of the laptop. Hello, Jennifer. How are you? Oh, great. Thanks for having me. So the book is, I mean, it does bill itself as this cultural history, and it certainly is a cultural history, but it's always about culture refracting back to the one question, which essentially is, are we sure we are doing it right now? So what got you thinking about that, having a kid? Yeah, I mean, I was just, I was just knocked sideways, and I really thought I knew what I was getting into. My friends had had kids. I had a nephew. I'd been on the ground. I knew it was really hard. And nothing prepares you for washing diarrhea out of neck folds. It was just so much harder than I was expecting, uh, which is why I started reading old parenting manuals and old books about how people used to do this to reassure myself that somehow you survive it. Let me ask you this question because you're now an expert. Uh, yesterday, my son was sick and we took the subway and he was like, Dad, I'm, I'm going to be sick. So because I'm a really good parent, I said, okay, we won't have to walk up the escalator. We'll take, we'll stick to the right and just ride up the escalator because, you know, I'm a kind and generous parent. <laughs> so then he starts like convulsing a little and it's clear he's going to throw up. So I have a choice. I'll put you. Let's play. Choose your own vomit adventure. Where do you direct him to throw up? And it's a long escalator. <sighs> 
And you're on the escalator? On the escalator. Like, he really starts okay. the convulsions a third of the way up, and half the escalator ride's going to be vomit. All right. Do you have a backpack? No. Good question. Oh, man. The last time I was with my child and there was nowhere for them to throw up, we were in a pool. Um, my son just vomited down my bathing suit. Interesting. Uh, so maybe down the shirt. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was awful. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. So you know the 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 rail, the black rail of the escalator, the handrail goes with the escalator? I had him go a little to the right of the rail when there's the metal part that just, you know, goes all the way down. So... I know. The, the vomit just kind of like like a slurry just went all the way down. I, I, I doubt down. it. I, I hoped no one was touching the, uh, I actually that think part. That was but why would that was pretty brilliant. Yeah. Public transportation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, this is me, you know, tapping you and your expertise, but I want to talk more about what you found when you went through history. I don't know. I feel like I can almost throw some phrases out at you. What was the Spartan uh, theater uh, performance that was, resu- that was a torture? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was the diam. I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's diamastigosis, uh-huh. and it was a big draw. It was kind of like um, the American Idol of yeah. the Spartan world. Uh, they had to build a big coliseum. It was so popular, and it involved whipping children. Um, it was part of sort of a coming of age ritual. And in one of the early versions, um, there was an enormous pile of cheese, and the children were try were to try to steal the cheese and would be whipped if they were successful. Even in uh, other societies, you know, there's the uh, the word that translates to the liposuctioner. Mm-hmm. So every culture has its own um, a boogeyman that's very telling about the culture. And, and Spain has a few that are really freaky. And one of them is um, – I don't know, my Spanish is terrible. It's like um, El Santa Manteca something. Um, and it, it means um, literally – the, the fat sucker. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea was, you know, this boogeyman would come and, and suck your fat. And even more disturbingly, <laughs> it's based on an actual serial, kill, serial killer. Yeah. So the fa- it's it's a sucker of fat, not a fat mm-hmm. sucker. Yeah. Which, which could right. be also. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> so what this all tells me and what you tell me in the book is that we or we used to or some cultures used to, but we've all descended from one culture or another, uh, used to have really uh, ideas about parenting and ideas about uh, corporal punishment that we would find abhorrent. But the... I guess conundrum is it's not like they couldn't have worked because we're here today. And in fact, Beethoven and some other fairly prominent, successful people were the subject to corporal of corporal punishment. Mm-hmm. And also agents of Beethoven would, would bite his students. Yeah. <laughs> Does that mean we're wrong? Does that mean we're wrong about corporal punishment? This is one of those things you absolutely can't question if you uh, travel in certain circles. Right. I don't think so. I think that, I think the research is pretty clear that it, it doesn't help at all. Um, interestingly, some of the 70s books that endorsed it, uh, endorsed it not because it was effective as a parenting technique, but because it was effective as a way for parents to blow off steam. Yeah, uh, which, which is it important. does. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But the recriminations, I think, are, are maybe worse. Right. So now that they have yoga, we don't have to uh, right. subject our children to an agony pair. It's good. Right, exactly. That's torture enough. Downward dog. (laughs) So if that was an example of a parenting trend of yore that has totally changed that you can endorse, you found many, many examples of current parenting trends that don't seem much more than trendy, especially when you uh, compare them to the past. 
it, like the elimination communication. Yeah, talk it, which about is that. yeah, that's a the diaperless living, um, and you learn to read your child's cues that they are about to need a bathroom, and um, and I mean these are infants. This is before they can speak, and then you very quickly get them to some kind of a receptacle, whether it's a toilet or a trash can or a salad bowl, uh, and let them do their business there. Um, Escalator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just felt like even with diapers, uh-huh. we constantly had accidents everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure how people manage without, but it certainly has its champions. But in all seriousness, um, if the book is an examination of cultural misadventures, adventures in history, was there, was there anything from history? Because so often it seems that history is either used to disqualify a current trend by saying, well, that's how they thought of it a hundred years ago. But in other instances, it seemed as a justification of the wisdom of the ancients. You know, this diet, which is how they lived 200 years ago and people were thinner, or, you know, this method of, uh, there's some, some money methods are, you know, harken back to the Bible or whatever. So sometimes history is a guide and sometimes history is a cautionary tale. Did you find instances of both of those things? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I certainly found a lot of cautionary <laughs> tales right. and I did find a little bit of good advice. Uh, and as far as people like invoking the past, um, I would say more often I found people criticizing the past because that's the way to sell books. Like if, yeah. you, if you don't say like the previous generation had it all wrong, um, there's no need to publish a new book. But yeah, some people had good advice. The ones who mostly told parents to, eh, you know, chill. Those were the ones that hold up pretty well. Yes, but there is also a giant trend of kind of ignoring children and not just leaving them to be eaten by wolves, but really absentee parenting that was such uh, an opposite of helicopter parenting, I think it would rightly appall us now. Yeah, it's stunning. And in fact, when I started doing the research for the book, I wasted at least two weeks um, on the search term parenting, which did not exist until 1970. I mean, it just, the idea that you would actually take care of your own children yeah. uh, is very recent. Uh, until then, your job was to have them, but it was not necessarily to raise them. Um, and yeah, that the the concept that you are responsible for your children's uh, moral and character and 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 physical development is pretty recent. Now, would that way back when would that be among all classes of society? I mean, not everyone could afford a uh, wet nurse and a nanny, or even schooling. Exactly, um, and but which meant that for the lowest classes. They were taking care of other people's kids for the so for their own kids, they might be watched over by a slightly older child, maybe by a neighbor. They did not have a ton of supervision. Accidents were pretty common. Yeah, and it also indicates that if you couldn't find references to parenting, those were the references in books. And probably the people who read books, that's a little bit of a self-selecting group. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. And I was also thinking there might be another thing, which is that maybe a reason that parenting didn't exist as a term is that the only choices a mother had, say, for instance, that why invent a specific term for it? Parenting to most women over the age of, you know, 21 was also known as just being alive and living. Right. I mean, we don't write books on sitting in chairs because yeah. just assume that everyone does that and you don't need a lesson on it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Do you think that we are in an especially fraught and dangerous age because of technology or have we, well, it is true, we've always had worries about technology, but are the current worries actually more apt than they, than they were when there was a 
panic over comic books? I spend a lot of time thinking about this, and I spend a lot of time feeling guilty about this because my kids are on screens way too much. Um, and hopefully this is something we're going to address this year. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of think that, like, in 20 or 30 years, it's going to be, like, when we watch Mad Men now and everyone's yeah. smoking in front of their babies and us on our screens in front of our kids and ignoring our kids and our kids on their own screens. Yeah, I don't think it's good. I really do wonder. Like, it does seem bad, and you read stories out of Silicon Valley that they don't let their kids have screen time, and how can so much screen time be good? But it also seems in many ways more analogous than less to the classic uh, baby boomer or our generation kid who would come home and like two and a half hours of television on a lot of days wasn't wasn't the exception, you know? Right. So Right, and there were moral panics about that then. There's moral panics about everything, yeah. Right, right, and comic books, which, you know, we're going to end humanity as we know it. We've been home for the past two weeks for, you know, winter break and just constant YouTube. It's not good. <laughs> and then they start quoting YouTubers and I, I and asking if they can have YouTube channels, and I really panic. I got I got a couple of kids who like to watch other people play Minecraft, which is apparently if you, you, right. you it's I something know. you could be really good at, apparently. I guess I don't yeah, play football. I, I like to watch people play football. Who am I to <laughs> who am I to judge? <laughs> I, I do wonder a lot if if it's different, um, just because like a TV you could only watch TV, but with a screen, you can go really deep. Yes, uh, so, that's yeah. right. I'm concerned. Right, so the YouTube videos, to me, that's the analogy to TV. But once they're typing things and getting into social media, that's – I mean, I have tried to really, really uh, ride herd on that. Not that they're not uh, mm-hmm. here and there uh, dipping their toes in, but that's the one that I really have to think differently about. I think the YouTube right. videos are pretty much like their TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, as long as they stay out of the comments, and yeah, yeah, pretty pretty harmless. And do you think the amount of uh, talking about mothering, coming out of the shadows about mothering, as you, as you uh, I, I say mothering, but parenting, but as you note, you know, the word parenting is a recent invention, just the sheer amount, the volume of discussion, uh, good or bad or a little like screens needs to be monitored? <sighs> You know, I'm all for venting. I really am. And, and I think it it helps to commiserate um, and to realize that other parents are in it just like you are. Um, the stuff I don't love is um, the Instagram perfect stuff. Um, I don't think that makes anyone feel better. Um, and the shaming other parents. Yeah. Is, you know, is, you're not doing anyone any favors. Act Natural is the name of the book. It is a cultural history of misadventures in parenting. The little pictures are just are just really worth it. They're horrifying and hysterical. Jennifer Traig is the author. Thank you, Jennifer. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And now the spiel. Iowa Congressman Steve King was supposed to be admonished or possibly even punished today by Republican leadership. It is unclear, as of my speaking to you right now, what, if anything, went down. Because that issue was King's statement, though maybe should have been King's whole career, but his specific statement, really a question to the New York Times, white nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization, how did that language become offensive? 
How indeed. And before King could start opining about the mongrelization of the races, when do we take our eyes off of that? And Octoroon, it's science. Am I right? No, you're not right. That at least did not make it into the press. But the parts that I read did. And even to his fellow Republicans, it was a question that should not have been asked. Even to fellow Republican Louisiana Representative Steve Scalise, who has been known to speak at white supremacist gatherings himself. But he apologized. He was wrong. He called that a mistake. Scalise said this about Representative King. We've got to raise the bar on civility, George. We need to call it out on the Republican side and the Democrat side. I've been willing to call it out on both. It's time those Democrat leaders you just mentioned call it out when it happens on their side as well. But yes or no. Steve King himself addressed the comments that he made on Friday on the House floor. And he pointedly, he viciously lashed out at the New York Times for accurately quoting him. He took to the floor to decry not exactly what he said and not the fact that the New York Times got the quote right. But he just regretted that people got upset because they didn't understand what he meant by his words. And what he meant by his words is that the Western civilization part, that really is good. He'd hate it if people heard his questioning about how white nationalism, white supremacy, and Western civilization became offensive. He'd hate it if they thought that he thought that the Western civilization part really was offensive. As far as I could tell, Steve King was very angry at someone or something or some forces unknown, but he was angriest at the vague idea that tumult was caused and probably not by him. Here's how he put it. So, Mr. Speaker, I regret the heartburn that has poured forth upon this Congress and this country and especially in my state and in my congressional district. But the people who know me No, I wouldn't have to even make this statement because they do know me. They know my life. They know my history. They know that I have lived in the same place since 1978. There's nothing about my family or my history or my neighborhood or my that would suggest that these false allegations could be supported by any activity whatsoever. I reject that ideology. I defend American civilization, which is an essential component of Western civilization. Steve King proudly standing up for his neighborhood and by extension, Western civilization. Now, the president, when asked about it, said he hadn't been following the Steve King story, though he did weigh in on the Jeff Bezos divorce, and he has been furiously, furiously fulminating about the wall. Which brings us back to Steve King. You see, Steve King got his start before he was in Congress in the field of earth moving. And that led him to sit on some regional boards and then to hold national office in the field of earth moving and eventually got elected to Congress. And while in Congress, back in 2006, he took to the floor of the House of Representatives and laid on them what really is this this totally cool idea, I guess in the name of preserving Western civilization, from the other people in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, I'm going to do the two-minute drill on the King Wall on the border. The King Wall. What Steve King is doing in this clip is snapping together a wall prototype he had made up. It's as if he was selling to a convention of Hawkeyes and overalls, not speaking to Congress. The King Wall, which has since been rebranded as the Trump Wall, so as to avoid any whiff of association with a racist, pause, and hold for reaction, went like, well, it went like this. We have the ability to put together a machine that would be a slip-form machine that would lay a footing about like this, Mr. Speaker. And if I give you a look at the end of that, 
That's so you'd have that about five feet deep underneath the ground. It'd keep that keep the wall from tipping over. We'd pour a, sl a notch in it that'll allow us to put precast panels in. I don't know. I've seen a lot of congressional votes on, say, the F-22 Falcon, but usually a representative from Lockheed Martin or whoever re represents the Lockheed Martin plant, say, in Fort Worth, where they assemble the F-22, doesn't come with a little tiny plane and start snapping it together and start telling you it's kill capacity. And I think when prison funding comes up, there's no elected official who goes there with, like, a playpen penitentiary where the doors slide. But there was Representative King snapping his little tiny wall into play so we could all get a sense of how the big one would work. Drop these panels in together in this fashion. Just let me take, take a crane and drop them in. Our little construction company could build a mile a day of this pretty easily once you got your system going. Eventually, King topped his mini modular wall with some faux barbed wire. It was probably just tinsel. There were no barbs in it. You wouldn't want to hurt his fingers. But it fit with the model choo-choo train vibe that he was going for on the floor of the House of Representatives. Twelve and a half years later, Steve King is still in Congress, scolded by his own party for his racially backward opinions, while his equally backward signature idea has so taken hold of his caucus that they've shut down the government over it. At least, this gives congressional Republicans a chance to tell Steve King how offensive that one set of words he uttered really was. And that's it for today's show. That just was produced by PRBNMA and Daniel Schrader. They've taken a tiny podcast studio around with them to share with potential audiences how podcasts work. It's like a real studio, but with one fewer mic and much, much, much smaller. T.J. Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She has a working model of a fork that she takes with her everywhere to demonstrate how a larger fork, even a pitchfork, could work. Please sign up for the Slate Gist newsletter. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Each week, we'll share with you some extra stories, the highlights of the show, and I'll answer a trivia question. We did a trivia event called Subdue the Guru, and here is a question I asked on the stage. If you weren't there, you might not know this. YouTube is home to tons of cat videos, many of them dating back to before there was even an internet what is the oldest cat video that you can view on YouTube? The Gist, we are a smaller version of a much larger, say, three-and-a-half-hour podcast, but this is just proof of concept. It demonstrates how that large podcast would work. Maybe the large one would have some MMA episodes and interview Jordan Peterson. This is that, but smaller and more palatable. Oompuru, depuru, dupuru, and thanks for listening.